It's the TEH Podcast, episode 126. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. How is life in Denver, Gary? Well, it's uh, unlike the rest of the country, which is all talking about cold and snowstorms. Um, it's like 65 and sunny today. So, Oh, I hate you. The um, <laughs> uh, We're not talking cold and snowstorm. We're just talking cold and rain up here. It's been raining like crazy for the past several days. So, well, you do Se- live in Seattle. Say, Seattle's living up to its <laughs> reputation right now, yeah. which is fine. This is this is what all the locals want everybody to realize happens, you know, 365 days a year. But uh, but yeah, things are kind of wet out there. The yard's kind of muddy. The dogs are, you know, they're, they're low riders, so they they pick up a lot of the water when they come back in. And yeah. So. Indeed. So, so we're going to start, we're going to do something different for this episode different and again, yes. a, a future episode as well, maybe next week. Um, we are going to delve into our respective origin stories. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> bitten by a radioactive computer. Um, and that's how we got to be it was a bug. Uh, what we are today. Uh, <laughs> no, of course, uh, you know, today we're going to talk about you. And uh, everybody who is in the tech industry has basically an origin story. Oh, I got my first computer or my first interest in computers came because of this or something. And, um, and you and I are no exception to that. So... Today, let's talk about your origin story. As I understand it, um, you first, like many people of your age, <laughs> had an interest in electronics right. before computers. Yep, yep. Back in the days of uh, Radio Shack actually still existing and Heathkit being a thing, I was I was looking at um, all sorts of random electronic stuff. I uh, I wrote up in an article um, that's actually on my personal blog. I looked at it. It's actually a 10-year-old article. Um, that um, when I was somewhere between like nine and 16, my parents had a friend who was, as it turns out, a, um, a TV repairman uh, for Sears, actually. And uh, he, among other things, would allow me to uh, you know, play with his oscilloscope and show me some random things. And back in those days, there were ways you had to make um, adjustments to your color TV so that the three guns would all line up properly on the screen. He showed me how to do that. So I went home and adjusted our TV for a better picture, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and I was also, I mean, clearly I was one of those those silly uh, kids that took everything apart and was unable to put most of it back together again. If we fast forward, oh, one one little story that I don't know that I've I've actually written about this anywhere at all. Back in I think it was seventh grade, so I probably would have been right in that same age range. I um, our class was uh, discussing or learning about the different number bases, you know, like base ten, base two, base whatever. Right? It's an arbitrary thing, base sixteen. Um, and what we had was instead of a spelling bee, we had what we called a base race. And each person was simply had to um, read out or think out the next number in sequence in binary. So we'd start, you know, one person would say one, one person would say one zero, the next person would say one one, and so forth. Um, I did not win. I came in second. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it was, I, I took that, especially looking back, 
as kind of a uh, a precursor of things to come. Because at that point, I didn't know computers were just not a thing, right? They were just not something we played with, not something we had, not something we talked about. At best, the only thing that got me excited at that point was, um, and we've talked about this before, the movie Colossus, a four-bin project, where they yeah. basically um, have you know two supercomputers uh, in the United States and Russia, or in U Soviet Union at the time, um, linking up and basically taking over the world. But I wasn't there yet. Anyway, so, you know, with that as kind of a background, you know, I was playing with electronics. I, I knew how to use a soldering iron and, and you know, just sort of stuff. Uh, eventually, uh, I did, of course, graduate high school in the 19, class of 75. And one of the things that you end up doing at that point, of course, is applying to different colleges. Um, I applied to the four different uh, universities here in the state of Washington, the four major ones. I ended up going to the University of Washington, and they, in their application, basically said, okay, you know, what is your interest? What's your field of study? What, what do you, you know, ultimately it's the question, what do you want to major in? Which of course I wasn't in any way, shape or form prepared to answer. Uh, so I just put down electronics as being something interesting. Now this wouldn't fly today, but what they ended up doing at that time was simply assigning me to the college of engineering and further um, enrolling me in their electrical engineers program. Today, that's like a separate process that you then have to meet more criteria that I'm sure I never would have met back in the day. But um, it was just, you know, sort of fortuitous happenstance that my use of the word electronics on my application put me in the College of Electrical Engineering at the University of Washington. I think it was my, and again, I still, I haven't touched a computer um, yet at all. Uh, so, I mean, like uh, at that point, I'd be, what, about 18 or 19 and mm -hmm. uh, the second quarter of my first year, second semester, I should say, uh, there was this class that was a requirement for all of the engineering students. It was Engineering 141, Introduction to Fortran Programming. Mm -hmm. Fortran, um, as our listener may or may not know, is uh, fundamentally an engineering programming language. It has its roots there and it was used very, very heavily in the engineering disciplines, especially around that time uh, for doing all sorts of analyses and modeling and, and so on. So of course it was required for everybody. You just, you had to take Fortran programming. And I did. And I don't know if it was like a week or two in or three or four, um, but it was like that right there was my light bulb moment. That was the point at which I realized, oh crap, I'm good at this. I enjoy it and people will pay me to do it for them. And ultimately within a span of a few weeks, my career had been decided. My direction had been decided. It was, um, you know, you often hear about people stumbling into their passion and that's absolutely what happened to me. Now, Fortran then is not like programming now. I mean, this was still back in the days of, um, I was learning to program Fortran using a, a mainframe. What, a what's, um, do you remember what type of mainframe it was? It was a CDC 6400. Okay. And, um, and then they got a second one. It was a CDC Cyber 75, I think it was. Mm. Uh, they were 60-bit machines. Uh, they did not use hex. They used octal. So I left you know, that class thinking in octal rather than thinking in hex. Hex would be much more useful later on. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, basically you wrote things on punch cards. You you learned how to use a key punch. You you 
put your, your, you had your deck of cards with all the statements in the right order and you hoped that they didn't get dropped uh, because then all of a sudden you'd have to figure out how to resort your cards once again. Um, anyway, I had a great time. I, I literally, I just, I, I had a, such a great time in that class. Of course, um, you know, I got a 4.0, uh, the, the highest score there. Um, and as it turns out, maybe it was the seeds of ask Leo beginning, but I was helping other people in the class, mm, right? Yeah. They were, they were having problems. Um, they would, um, you know, obviously as a class, we would hang out together and, and talk about things and, and I'd say, Oh yeah, well that, that, let me take a look. And, and that over there needs fixing or, you know, that's not how this works. So let me explain this, this concept to you. So that even started fairly early. My second class, uh, actually I took over the summer. Uh, normally folks were taking summers off, but I, you know, I, hell, I was having fun. Uh, so I decided to take my second class. It was also on the mainframe, of course, but it was of all things. Can you even make a guess? You want cobol? to guess? No, no, actually I didn't learn COBOL until much, much later. So, so it wasn't, so it was another computer language. Uh-huh. Was it, was it just C? No, I don't think I even stumbled into C until I left the university. Wow. Okay. No, I learned uh, the CDC 6400 assembly language. Oh, assembly. Okay. I went straight to assembly after Fortran. Mm. Um, and again, I just, I had a blast with it. It was fun. I mean, imagine doing assembly coding on on punch cards. Um, you know, I wrote random <laughs> tools that would print pretty pictures and do banners and so forth on the line printer at that time. Um, but these were all things that I just ate up. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's funny the the prof, the guy who was teaching it at the time, he said that, you know, there's, you know, here's this sequence of instructions and there's some magic sequence that let you, I think do an absolute value was his test. Um, and I can never remember what it is, but there's always somebody in the class that reminds me. Um, and sure enough, you know, I'd come up to him later and say, yeah, you do this. Um, so it, like I said, it was just one of those things where things, just clicked. So I went on in the electrical engineering program. And uh, of course, there's various classes that you have to take, some of which were required, uh, some of which were uh, more uh, electives that that basically went in line with, with what I had realized was my passion for computing and computer technology. So I did really bad in statistical analysis and those kinds of things, even though you were supposed to use the computers to do your analyses, but the whole concept of the math behind it all just, just went way over my head. But when it came down to like working with microprocessors, because I had my first introduction to microprocessors there, the 8080, we were tasked with creating, you know, basically projects. You had a, a, some kind of a serious project to do over the course of one semester. The first one I did was a uh, cash register. I basically just wrote a cash register. I called it the cash register application program because I thought the acronym was cool. <laughs> and side effect was yeah. that I had just come off of working at a grocery store for four years. So I also had a practical application for what this might actually be used for. So I knew what <laughs> to do. Uh, the other project that was, again, a, a semester-long project was using, I think it was a TI-9900 microprocessor, 16-bit, that would be my first 16-bit processor, to control an HO train set, oh. which was kind of fun. I you know, got the train running and you know, you're supposed to switch it. It's a couple of concentric circles with switches between the two. The goal was to get three trains running simultaneously 
on the two loops. So you actually had to you know, somehow control where they were and handle essentially uh, what I didn't realize until later, early multiprocessing, being able to handle you know three independent things happening at the same time. Mm. Uh, did well with that, had fun with it. Again, uh, it, it spoke to me because I already had like a big old HO train set at home <laughs> I was used to playing with. <laughs> um, but what was, again, I think telling was that before I graduated, I ended up being an assistant for the Fortran class for one quarter, a TA, even though TAs were only supposed to be graduate students. And I ended up writing what we would now call device driver software for the next iteration of that train set for the students to use so that they didn't have to worry about the low-level stuff and that they could focus on the algorithms that they were working on to get the trains running. Hmm. So, I mean, again, you could tell that was just, that was a lot of fun. I had, I had a blast doing that kind of stuff in, uh, uh, in school. And I definitely, when I wrote up my first resume, I took care to separate out, okay, yeah, 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 okay, here's my GPA. But if you take a look at the courses that actually matter, <laughs> my GPA is much higher, right? Mm. Um, you know, I, I sucked at philosophy and my chemistry teacher was horrible and physics just didn't do it for me. But if you focus on the things that were all about computers and technology, um, I had it nailed. So I... Um, uh, ended up getting uh, my first job interview was actually someone that my one of my advisors at school pointed me to. I bombed it horribly because they wanted me to do hexadecimal math, and I had no experience with hexadecimal. Like I said, everything we were doing was in octal, yeah. um, so it was a horrible experience. Uh, but I ended up um, working at a small company in Seattle. It was my first job out of school. I did not go directly to Microsoft. First job out of school was for a small company in Seattle. Uh, they started out with, uh, well, when I joined, there were 25 people. I was the third person in their software department. Um, and I went from 25 people to five people by the time I left. Uh, it wasn't my fault, honest. Hmm. Um, I was the software department when I left. So I basically outlasted both the guy that hired me and the other person he hired at the same time. Uh, I had, again, a lot of fun doing, this was a Z80 processor-based organization. They were doing data entry terminals, basically a keyboard and a tape drive and a little display. And the whole idea was that uh, data entry operators would basically be entering data all day long that would get recorded on the tape drive. And then at the end of the day or overnight, they would uh, set the machine up so that it would then transmit that data to a data center where it would end up getting processed. My responsibilities were things like the communication software that basically sent that data on. So I was, you know, basically working with uh, the protocols between this little Z80 processor and a mainframe at some other some other place. Uh, managed to get a trip to London out of it to go visit one of those data centers because they were using our machines. Um, it was fun, uh, but I ended up touching on a whole lot of other stuff while I was there. I definitely ended up uh, working into that whole jack-of-all-trades thing that um, that ultimately has served me very, very well over my career. Because in addition then to the um, uh, communication software, 
I was also responsible for, they had a cassette basic that they used on the machine. They had documentation that needed to get sent. They, I ended up doing a newsletter of all things for the company that talked about the technology and going out to all the customers. Um, they did all sorts of random things. Then of course they decided they needed a machine that ran with disks and CPM at the time. So they built a new machine on the same processor and I ended up doing the uh, device drivers, what we would now call device drivers for CPM and uh, implementing all that and getting actually a pretty pretty nice setup for CPM. It's an 8-bit operating system. There wasn't a whole lot you could do with it compared to today's machine, but boy, we really did exercise the heck out of it. Um, a Z80 processor can really only access 64K of memory, but we had some fancy hardware that allowed us to expand that up to 256K. Uh, it was, you know, there's some really interesting innovative stuff that we were doing huh. there. The Mike, the basic has an interesting story because, of course, at that time, this would be around 19, I'll say 77, 78, um, Microsoft was the name to, you know, th that basically did basic. They had already made their name. Bill and Paul had already done their thing with the Altair. Uh, uh -huh. And it was Microsoft basic was sort of the pseudo industry standard at that small uh, microprocessor level. As it turns out, you know, our company had Microsoft had, I'm sorry, we had a cassette basic. And what I didn't realize until I got there, until I started looking at it is in fact, it was a copy of Microsoft basic. What I heard later is that it wasn't necessarily a legal copy of Microsoft hmm. basic. One of my predecessors, someone who had left the company shortly before I joined actually had reverse engineered it, uh, de Deassembled it. I'm just not sure exactly what technique he used. I think he actually managed to get source code and he had made Microsoft basic work on our machine. I was promised that the legalities had all been taken care of before I arrived. So yes, I was working on Microsoft basic before I even joined Microsoft. What was ultimately ironic is that the guy, my predecessor who had um, illegally, so to speak, uh, implemented Microsoft Basic on our company's hardware, went on to join Microsoft a few months before I did. And in fact, I ran into him a couple of times after I was working there. He was not a happy camper. I'm not sure what his story was, but he, he had done that. Huh. Interesting. So Microsoft, I joined in 1983. Again, I've got another one of these, you know, there's a story behind it, of course. I, I wrote it up um, in an article on my personal blog again, that um, it was one of those situations where, you know, I could see the company was going from 25 to five people. Uh, I'd already encountered Microsoft enough times. I realized that they were local. It was a situation where, you know, I should just, it's probably time to prepare some options here in case the company goes from five even lower. The writing yeah. was on the wall. So the, the, the conversation I had with a few people was, okay, I'll send them a resume. What's the worst that could happen? They could get back to me. Well, they got back to me. Okay, oh. fine. I'll, I'll, I'll send them the additional information. What's the worst that could happen? They could ask me for more. They could ask me in for an interview. Well, they asked me in for an interview. So I said, fine, what's the worst that could happen? I'll you know, go and interview and have some fun with them. And what's the worst that can happen, right? Well, long story short, of course, is they ended up making me an offer. Uh, I ended up sitting across the table from Steve Ballmer. And he offered me less than I was making in my current job. And uh, these things called stock options, which I had no idea what they were or what they were would you know eventually be worth. To me, it was just funny money. So I didn't really think about it that much. I said, you know what? 
that's not even as much as I'm making now. At least offer me something more uh, on an annual basis so that I can, you know, justify it. And he did, and I did, and and of course, the rest, as they say, is history. How many people up, were at Microsoft by, uh, around that time? Three hundred and sixty, I think, four. Um, wow, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny. It was just at that cusp where uh, no, not everybody knows Bill. Uh, in fact, I was having a discussion with someone uh, just the other day. Where, for example, because I was at, I joined Microsoft in 1983, everybody kind of assumes that you know Bill and I are buddies. Well, the short answer is no. Um, I've actually uh, uh, let's see how does how does this work? I have emailed him twice. I've gotten a response once, and I've been to his house five times. Uh, and it's you know the house because he uses them for like new hire events. Or at one point there was an old timers event, um, and we were out at his new house, um, which is huge. Uh, you know, as you might expect, right? Should At that be, yeah. time, he was absolutely the, the wealthiest man in the world. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was a small company, but getting bigger. Uh, for the, I think the first ten years I was there, maybe a little bit longer, um, the company basically just doubled in size every year. So it was 360 when I started. It was 720 by the you know the next year. It was 1400 after that, and you know it was it was literally um, an exponential progression in size. We were always building buildings. We were always running projects. We were always hiring new people. But one of the neat things was that offices were based on seniority, and after a couple of those doublings, uh, I was the most senior person on you know like the, for the last. I'll say three quarters of my career there, it was pretty often that I was the senior person on the team, even more so than whoever I was reporting to. And when it came time to move to yet another office, uh, I got to pick. Now I'll take the one over there with the window or the corner window or whatever, right? So that was always always kind of fun. Um, anyway, that's where I learned COBOL. I didn't learn COBOL until I actually joined Microsoft because they um, that when I started, they said, okay, we've got three positions that are available. There's one in basic, there's one in basic, and there's one in COBOL. And of course I said, great, basic, I have experience. Let me take that one. And they said, well, no, how about this other one? I said, okay, great. Give me that other basic. Well, no, how about this COBOL thing over here? <sighs> okay, fine. I'll go work on COBOL. And of course, to work on something, you don't necessarily, to work on a programming language, you don't necessarily have to know the programming language. Mm. In other words, clearly it wasn't a requirement that I know COBOL in order to be able to work on COBOL. Uh, certainly for the tasks that I was initially assigned, that just wasn't part of the part of the requirement. But of course I did, I learned COBOL um, and in fact wrote one of Microsoft's first internal bug tracking tools using COBOL just as an experiment to see how it would work. And it worked out really, really well. Um, but I spent, I think it was about two years on COBOL. I moved on to, uh, I did finally end up joining the basic group. Uh, at that time, management training was, uh, you know, here, you've got some reports, good luck. Uh, there was no training. Uh, it's funny, the, I often hear from people who are joining the company these days, and they say that a new hire orientation is like a full day exercise uh, where they're you know, pummeling you with documents that you have to sign and, and giving you all this information. Uh, no, my new, or, my new employee orientation was a half an hour sitting in the HR manager's office, filling out a couple of forms and being shown to my office. And that was it. Same thing for management training. There just wasn't any. It's like, here's the deep end. Hope you can swim. Um, and of course, I learned how to swim. I ended up managing um, individuals or writing software going back and forth for my entire career at Microsoft. 
uh, one of the things I really appreciated about the company, even though it was, you know, on the order of 50,000 people when I left, many aspects of it still had that small company feel. I've often described it to others as working as, as a number of small companies that just happened to share a campus. And it was a really, really good feel for many, many of those years. Um, a lot of fun doing that, still that small company kind of thing, uh, making decisions, pivoting quickly in ways that large companies really can't do. Uh, let's see. Um, so, like I said, I, I had a, a course through um, you know, programming languages. I worked on, um, I went on to work on Microsoft Money for a while. I worked on Windows Help for a while. I worked on the character mode help engine for a while. It's where I got my first um, patent, which was kind of fun. Uh, oh. I lost a lot of respect for the patent process in the process. <laughs> because it was just too, it was too easy. It was too easy. Yeah. To me, one, one of the, the criteria for getting a patent is that it be, how do they put it? it should not be obvious to someone practiced in the art. In other words, whatever sphere you're working in, somebody else who's familiar with that sphere should not consider what you're doing as being obvious. Hmm. Um, now, of course, I considered what I was doing obvious, but then I was knee deep in it. I was neck deep in it. And Microsoft at that point, especially was, was working on building their patent portfolio. Uh, so yeah, I, I got a patent. Um, in fact, I'll dig up a, a link to it cause it's available online. You can still see my name on it. It's long since expired. Of course, the 17 years of long gone. Um, it was about compression text. Uh, uh, basically the, the reason that I, I lost the respect is that, you know, to me, it was, if, if you develop a new type of compression, that's awesome. I mean, you, you've come up with some incredibly difficult mathematical algorithms that, you know, are 1% better than anything else on the planet. That's patent worthy. That's not what I did. What I did was I said, okay, I'll take this type of compression and then do this type of compression and then do that type of compression. In other words, I'll just run these three already known, well-known compression algorithms in sequence. And it applies really, really well for the application that I'm working on. And somebody said, well, yeah, we should patent that. And it's the huh. combination of the three that's the patent. It's not any one of those three. Those are individual technologies. But the fact that I strung them together the way I did was apparently patent worthy. Huh. So fun times. Let's see. So let's see what else. I mentioned money. I mentioned um, Windows help and text boat help. And I was the, uh, I ended up working in Visual Studio for a while, the development platform. I ran the build lab where we would actually build this humongous project, uh, you know, every night for the developers. Cause it's at that time, these were, these were huge projects. Like we shipped it on like a CD. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't fit on floppies anymore. Uh, so, you know, that all happened. Eventually, uh, you know, things were uh, comfortable enough that I was working part-time. And then when that part-time opportunity went away, uh, the uh, you know it was a kind of one of those administrative things where uh, you know you could work part-time, but the 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 group that you're in has to spend a full-time headcount on it. So mm -hmm. rather than have somebody part-time, um, they didn't want to do the part-time thing anymore, and they wanted to get someone full-time. And I said, okay, you know what? I would like some more time for myself. And that's when I decided to leave. So that was 2001. Uh, it was 
an awesome career there. I really, really look back on it fondly. Of course, there were horrific moments. I definitely have Dilbert's uh, uh, pointy-haired boss. There is an individual who I, I refer to as uh, the Dilbert's PHB incarnate. Uh, so there were certainly the rough times, but there was some awesome times and I really enjoyed there for someone doing and loving what I love to do. Uh, it was the right place to be for the time that I was there. So what happened after Microsoft is that I ended up taking a probably, oh gosh, I did go back for a few months as a contractor working on a project, but about that time my parents got ill. So I ended up taking about a year and a half off. Uh, I was very grateful to be able to do that, but basically take a year and a half off to uh, just sort of deal with all that. In, uh, I want to say, well, moments after I left Microsoft, I got invited to join this mastermind group. Uh, you might be familiar mm. with it, Gary. I may be. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, because now I was effectively working for myself, even though I, like I said, I was taking about a year to, to uh, deal with some personal issues. And um, that led to uh, ultimately... <laughs> The day you and I met for the first time, I think you went. You went to Vegas, didn't you? That first no, conference. no, oh, didn't. I didn't. Oh. But it was somewhere around there. I mean, we both yeah, uh, joined think... about the same time. I mean, it's fair to say though that I mean the term mastermind hadn't yet been in use, so we Not it was widely. kind of a group. Yeah, the, it was it was odd group that it was hard to explain what it was. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the term mastermind has certainly been around for a long time, but yes, we weren't really referring to it as a mastermind group at no. that time. You do you do hear the term a lot more now. Um, so you must have been like the conference after that, or maybe or I mean like we that. definitely met online. Absolutely, oh yeah, we were already conversing in email. Yeah. yeah, so we already conversed. I already knew knew you through that, but um, I don't, can't. Boy, I, I don't know when the first time we would have met in person. It would have been around there. Yeah, yeah. I think the Probably next conference was in Boulder, so I don't know if you were if you went to that. That was one. probably that was yeah. I was definitely at that one. Yeah. Um, at any rate, so at the, even at that point, I didn't really have a clear idea of what I was going to be doing next. I just knew that I was going to be doing it um, solo as an entrepreneur. Um, I'd been helping my wife's doll shop out, so I already had a lot of internet on my, under my belt. Um, I forgot to mention that I spent um, a year and a half working on Expedia before it spun off from Microsoft. I was the guy in the data center when they actually released the product on day one. Um, so I had, you know, I had some internet experience and I had a, a motivation to, to, you know, be my own boss uh, and just sort of do things at home and have fun with it. And I got hooked up with this internet entrepreneurs group, this mastermind group. And from that group, there are, there's a, a confluence of about three or four people that all started an ask kind of site. Uh, right. At roughly the same time. And we were actually modeling someone else who joined the group with an ask uh, kind of site. And uh, it was like, oh, God, I get asked questions all the time. Mm. I could publish those. Oh, there's advertising? You mean I can make money doing this? People will pay me to do the stuff I love? That sounded kind of familiar. Uh, so that's ultimately where Ask Leo started. The, the conference was in uh, May, uh, late April and May of 2003. Ask Leo's first answer got published on August the 10th. Uh, it had to deal with Internet Explorer version 6. Um, that article is still out on the website just because nobody uses Internet Explorer 6 anymore, but it's kind <laughs> of fun to have it there for, for uh, uh, retrospective. Um, and technically, when I left Microsoft, and certainly when I left um, the contracting position that I was in for a little while, I considered myself as having retired. 
Um, I was at that point, I would have been like 45, 44, 45. Um, and I pretty much expected that, you know, yeah, I would do this thing, this internet thing for a while and have some fun with it, but it wasn't necessarily going to be a job. Um, it's still not a job, but it certainly takes the time because I'm still having that much fun with it. Um, it's been, uh, gosh, this year will be the 18th year that uh, Ask Leo has been in existence. And you know, a lot of technologies changed. As you can imagine, when I left Microsoft, I was extremely well-versed in Microsoft technologies and not much else. Um, it didn't take me long to discover things like Linux. Uh, my servers were on Linux then, uh, you know, almost immediately. Uh, the, I ended up, you know, as you know, I ended up purchasing a Mac not long after you showed a couple of interesting features in uh, Final Cut Pro that I thought were worth getting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting ride since then. This is this is if this is retirement, I'm swear I'm busier now than I was at Microsoft at times. Um, but I'm having just as as much fun today um, as I was back then. Um, and the commute is a lot easier. <laughs> Can't beat it. Something that I'm sure a lot of people have figured out in the last year that this whole commuting thing, man, that eats, eats a bunch of time out of your day. I'm not sure I want to go back to work in person. But that's the kind of stuff that, you know, people like you and me have been doing for years. So, yeah, yeah that's, um, that's kind of sort of the origin story. There's all sorts of, as you might imagine, random details and things going on. I'll see if I can't, uh, like I said, dig up a link to that patent. And I've got links to those couple of articles that I talked about where I've already um, discussed some of that. The, the one article that I think people might find most interesting is the one called How It Began and Ended because it includes um, but the, the ad I responded to from the newspaper, which I discovered not that long ago, uh, the, my resume in 1970, or no, 1982, uh, and uh, a bunch of letters from people like Steve Ballmer and a, uh, what was then, uh, what did they call it? Oh, a mailgram uh, from Bill Gates welcoming me to the company, <laughs> uh, you know, those kinds of things. So yeah, those, that's, that's all very interesting uh, historical curiosities at this point. When, when do you think you got your first email address? Uh, that would have been May the 3rd of, uh, of um, 1983. Uh, I was Leo N. And uh, that was before Microsoft was doing a lot of stuff on the internet directly. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was my first email ever, right? I hadn't even used email since then. And I was introduced to it on, um, at that point, it was Xenix mail. So it was a Unix variant. Yeah. Um, but that Leo N., uh, and again, in hindsight, had I known, I would have just said, hey, could you please give me Leo? Because, um, you know, my, my name is Leo. I don't typically go by Leon. Uh, but of course, everybody seeing that as my email address would call me that. I learned to live with it. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that uh, they finally got themselves more completely hooked up to the internet with their own domain that Leon at Microsoft.com came into existence. Interesting. What, do you remember, uh, it would have been when you were at Microsoft, obviously, like when you first became aware of, you know, the web? I mean, because the internet was around, you know, started technically 1969 and, right. you know, ARPANET and all of that. But but when the World Wide Web first hit, I mean, which was a little bit before, was kind of public. Right. Like I said, Microsoft, you might have had access to to it, to the early stages? We had a lot of, of, of access to stuff for sure. I don't know that I'd necessarily call it the web at this point. I mean, we were definitely doing things with, uh, well, for example, um, do you remember Simtel? 
No. Oh, Simtel was a, a shareware repository um, mm -hmm. out somewhere. I'm not even sure where anymore. And, uh, but there was no web. So how do you get at it? Well, you send a specially formatted email to a specific email address and it would return you a listing of everything that they have. And then you'd send a different specially formatted email and it would return whatever you asked for as an attachment. Um, so that's how, you know, a lot of shareware and that kind of stuff was getting distributed. Uh, we were of course, you know, doing things like running the old, um, internet utilities, you know, Gopher and Archie and those kinds of things, which I never had call to use. The closest I ever got was doing something like, like I said, you know, fetching software remotely or getting documentation remotely using the email responders. The internet itself, the true web, I don't think I personally really got exposed to it very hard um, until I joined the Expedia group, actually, when we were ramping up Expedia. Uh, that's when I really got a taste for what it meant to uh, to have an application on the internet, uh, to write software that people around the world were going to access in real time, uh, and and just sort of play with it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know of course you know I caught on to email pretty quick, but again I don't necessarily think of that as much as the excuse me as much of the of the web as much as I do just you know that's the internet that's been around forever. Yeah. How, how so is um, your original domain? Your original domain is a little different than the one you have now. There's a dash. There was a dash in your original domain. <laughs> um, when, when did you uh, when did you grab that? Oh, years after I should have. Um, so yeah. yes, right now I am askleo.com, and that um, was expensive, but it was going to be expensive no matter what. When I started Ask Leo, um, I originally ran it off of a domain that I'd already purchased myself called PugetSoundSoftware.com. Uh, that's the my corporate name. Even some um, uh, uh, consulting that I had done prior to joining Microsoft, I had business cards with Puget Sound Software on them, and I had a business license so that I could actually get paid for some stuff. Uh, when it, you know, post Microsoft, when I realized I was potentially going to be doing the same thing again, I was able to get the same name, company name, and registered the domain and so forth. So I was actually askleo.pugetsoundsoftware.com. And I think that may have been a server in my closet here uh, running, I think, Microsoft IIS. Oh. But the uh, when I finally you know saw the light probably shined on by some of those uh, entrepreneurial friends, I realized that I really needed my own top-level domain. But askleo.com was taken. And it was frustrating because it was taken by somebody that wasn't using it, right? He mm. was just parked on it. So, of course, you ask, how much do you want for it? And he said, 10 grand. And I said, <laughs> hell no, <laughs> right? That was a hard pass. Um, and that's an answer that I probably would have changed now in retrospect, along with a couple of others. Uh, but given that it was taken, I just said, okay, let's do ask-leo.com. Uh, which I still have today, and it's actually got an old copy of some old uh, old stuff on my site. Um, so I ran with that for a long time. I ended up also getting um, askleo.info with and without the dash, and I think there was one other one, askleo with and without the dash .net, mostly because at one point I started doing podcasts, and I wanted to be able to have something that was easier to roll off the tongue, easier for people to type in, and less likely to be mistyped. Hmm. So, you know, I have, I still have like all of those silly um, uh, typo domains or other, other um, uh, top level domain domains. Some years ago, I want to say four or five years ago, I reached out to 
the person who was owning it, it was the same person. He'd been sitting on it for, gosh, a good mm. 10 years. And I asked him, okay, what do you want for it? He said, 10 grand. And I said, no. So um, a mutual friend of ours uh, offered to step in and act as a third party just in case, you know, the guy realized that, you know, I now had, a, he, it was clear, I had a vested interest in that domain. I, I now had a footprint on the internet. If he just Googled Ask Leo, he would find me and know, okay, that domain might even be worth more. Right. Um, but the, the third party went in there and, and basically uh, purchased the domain on my behalf. And I, I uh, reimbursed him the, the 10 grand that I ended up paying for it. Oh, boy. Uh, but like I said, I probably should have paid originally. But, uh, but that's where we are today is finally on askleo.com the way it should have been from the beginning. Yeah, indeed. The other change, the other thing, I, I've mentioned this in a couple of different venues. Um, the other thing I would have done differently with Ask Leo specifically is I would have started my newsletter earlier. Right. I don't know if you remember, but in those early days, I said, I'm not a publisher. I'm not a newsletter publisher. I don't want to be a newsletter publisher. No, no, I don't want to do that. So it took me a good two or three years to, to actually, again, see the light um, as um, gently imparted on me by the other members of our, uh, of our group. And uh, that's when I started doing the newsletter. And I, like I said, I should have done that from day one as well, because I really do now see the value in having that. And in fact, now that I've got that one going, the Ask Leo uh, Confident Computing Newsletter, uh, every week, unobstructed, I'm up to like, uh, I think it's episode or, or issue number 896 now. Um, I've got, you know, a couple of other Ask Leo newsletters. I've got a couple of other non-tech newsletters, Heroic Stories, Not All News, Not All news is Bad, um, My New Seven Takeaways. Those are all newsletter-based because, oh yeah, newsletters, they're a great thing. They, they're a great way to do things. Um, even for managing your own time, the whole Seven Takeaways thing is there simply to force me to have a deadline every week so that I actually you know do something that I want to do. So yeah, newsletters, I would have done them earlier too. Yeah, newsletters are not only, you know, do we both have newsletters that are, you know, continue to be valuable, um, yeah. unlike other things on the internet, yes. which kind of go up and down, <laughs> you know, how valuable is your Facebook following? How, how valuable is your Twitter? You know, our newsletters never seem, they're like the gold standard almost, they right? Are. They never seem to like lose their value. Plus the whole idea of newsletters. I was just telling somebody just this morning who emailed me for some advice, you mm -hmm. know, a stranger that just asked me some things sure. about how important, you know, oh, you got to get a newsletter going. And I'm like, boy, here it is in 2021. Yep. And I'm repeating the same talking points about why you should get a newsletter to, to that I would have used back in, you know, 2000. It's interesting because for a while, newsletters uh, weren't really on people's radars. I mean, you and I and many of our friends kept doing them. I mean, there's a reason I'm up at 846, but they weren't really all that sexy. And what I've noticed is over the past, I'll say two years, they're bringing sexy back. They're, mm -hmm. the, when you take a look at a lot of internet marketers and a lot of, of internet publishers, um, they're all saying, you know what? All this social media stuff that we have no control over, I control my newsletter. People yeah. want my newsletter. That's a relationship I can, you know, I, that, that I value and they value, and that's something worth investing in. So yes, email newsletters are definitely, you know, email is not dead, which is an inside joke for our group, but um, uh, email newsletters more than anything else are just as popular as they ever were, if not more so. Indeed, indeed, and I, and definitely uh, for both of us, kind of secrets of our success. I mean. I don't know if it's number one, but it might be number one <laughs> on both of our lists. Yeah, uh, I yeah. think it would be number one for me. Is 
the, the biggest uh, secret of my success. Yep. Newsletters. Yep. So it's been fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the, uh, honestly, that's the short version. I mean, I've been talking for what, about 45 minutes. Yeah. But that's the short it's version done. of my it's, origin story. And it's been a, it's been a, it's been a fun, fun fascinating ride. stuff. It. Yeah. You definitely, you got some good uh, years of experience working in uh, kind of the ultimate corporate you know, computer environment, yeah, yeah. Microsoft, you know, one of the top companies and uh, all those years of experience you always have, but then switching over to, you know, entrepreneur on your own mm -hmm. um, and creating that whole journey. Fantastic. Yep. Yep. So next week or the week thereafter, your turn. Exactly. We'll have, yep. to, we'll, we'll yep. have to find out what we'll your origin story My origin story that what, what radioactive computer bit me. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, by the way, um, that's the one thing I, I forgot to add to my list or mention. Uh, the first computer I ever owned, well, the first computer I ever used, of course, was this um, CDC 6400, punch cards, the whole thing. Uh -huh. First computer I ever owned, an Apple, <clears throat> Apple IIe. Hmm. And I had fun with that. I was doing, uh, what is it, 6502 assembly language and uh, playing, uh, I think they had a version of Star Trek that you would load from cassette tape and, and all that kind of stuff. That's one of those things. And this is one where um, Kay would be very, you know, we would be waggling his finger at me because, of course, my machine's long gone. And now I wish I'd kept it because it's a collector's item. I know. Well, my, my first computer was not an Apple product as a teaser go. for next week. There you go. And yours was. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um Anyway, well, cool. Well, let's wrap up with some ain't it cool stuff and yeah. self promotion and all that. Let what me, if, what if what have you seen? So I just this wanted to mention related, real quick. We we um, a couple of episodes ago, and I didn't take the time to look up which one it was. We, you and I had talked about the X Y problem. Yes, and I actually ended up using our episode as a reference to go back and find the link to Wikipedia or whatever it was we were talking about to make sure because. Um, as you might imagine, I am a member of a of a, of a group of so-called Microsoft old timers on Facebook, and all of a sudden, uh, people were talking about getting asked X, but where Y was the answer they really wanted, kind of a thing. I just thought it was a hilarious callback to one of the episodes that we had, where this is such a common problem in the uh, in the computing industry and the computer support industry, especially. And you saw a lot of people, you know, at Microsoft still, or people who are supporting their families who are just regularly coming up with, "Yep, they're asking me X, but what they really need is Y." Yeah, and actually, I uh, I still am working on my process that I talked about in that episode of trying to get people to mm -hmm. to give me a good question so I right. can answer it for them. And even even this week, I made some adjustments. Even today, I had to send a question back to somebody who did not give me the real reason why, which right. prevented me from actually coming up with a solution. I said, you really got to tell me. Yep why <laughs> and then i there's probably an answer i just yep. can't guess at why you want to do this so i can't give you an answer yep you and i were supposed to be prescient we're supposed to we're supposed to be able to read people's minds through these wires called yes yeah the other thing i wanted to mention um in terms of just you know cool technology um i have been playing with otter.ai now it is essentially a, vo a voice to text service but it's it's um, uh, a primary use case is if you and I were having a face-to-face -face meeting, we one of us would take out our phone, turn on otter.ai, set it on the table between us, and it would, in real time, transcribe what you and I are saying 
and apparently also distinguish enough of the voice to be able to attribute it attribute the text to the right person speaking. Hmm. Um, I have been incredibly impressed by its ability to just you know listen to what I'm saying and uh, transcribe it correctly. Even for example, while I'm driving, my use case, and I'm still trying to come up with the perfect solution for this, is I want something ideally on my phone that I don't have to look at that will allow me to just randomly at any time take a voice memo. Um, and this one has come the closest so far. Uh, and uh, so I'm just having been having fun with it. There is a free version uh, for otter.ai. It uh, allows you to do something like 600 minutes of, of this kind of transcription every month. It resets every month. And of course, there's features for the paid version. And if it turns out to be you know, really useful, if it works into my use case, then I may end up spending the money. But for now, the free version is actually pretty cool. Having fun with it. Hmm, interesting. I'll check it out. Um, Mine's a non-tech thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, for the last several months, I haven't mentioned a book really on our ancient cool section because I've been reading a massive three-volume <laughs> biography that's just taken me months to get through um, on uh, on Theodore Roosevelt. So I will link to the first of the three books. Um, I found the first book to be amazing, uh, which is his life up to the point where he was elected vice president. Uh, mm -hmm. in 1900. And then the second book to be very boring, uh, mostly in the middle because he becomes president. Uh, no spoilers there. He, he, <laughs> he should know that Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States. Uh, and then it gets really boring, which actually is kind of a neat thing to like, you know, fascinating, amazing life of a man that, and then he gets to be president. And then it's like dealing with like labor disputes and legislation and stuff. And it's really boring. Um, and then the second book is basically his life as, as president. And then the third is after president, which then gets fascinating again, because he starts uh, actually doing so many things after he's president, because he was a very young president. So then he goes on an African safari, and he's now going to the Amazon, and he tried running, creating his own political party and running for president again. Mm -hmm. um, all sorts of adventures post-presidency. Anyway, I had no idea. I always liked him because of his you know, accomplishments, and he's a well-regarded president. I had no idea he basically seems to me that you could somehow measure it from afar at, that he was probably a genius. I mean, hmm. so well read. He seemed that he devoured more books than anybody I've ever heard of. Interesting. I mean, just devoured libraries full of books in different languages, spoke and read many languages, was a philosopher, wrote a ton of books. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, with today, how today's politicians are somebody like this who wrote books on like natural history, mm -hmm. like while he was president. Right. Right. You know I mean? So he was like ha half, like a kind of a scientist really yeah. and explorer and wrote these books and also wrote biographies of other people, you know, that had come before him. Um, so it was just, I just had no idea. He was so brilliant and obviously an extremely deep thinker and made me kind of sad that, you know, we no longer have, you know, uh, politicians that kind of, you know, go up to the, the Theodore Roosevelt level. Yeah. Um, yeah. but anyway, it's great, great stuff. Really well, you know, written by one person, the audiobook. Unfortunately, each audiobook is, is read by a different person. The first one, I, I found the, the reader to be way above average, like mm -hmm. excellent. And the others are fine, but the okay. first one was like, Oh, really, and really that, makes things. That's how you consumed life. it audio. 
yeah, audio, but I don't, I don't think I could have <laughs> consumed this any other way. Right. I mean, three really, I think it's audiobook. It's 25 hours each. Okay. So, you know, 25 hours yeah. each, each. So you're talking like 75, 75 hours. hours. I'm, I'm about 65 hours into it. Wow. So yeah, okay. but anyway, I'll, I'll save that for my next cross country trip. <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, maybe I'm just recommending, a, you know, there are other, other shorter biographies, but I mean, some of the details, I mean, the details of when he went out West, you know, I've heard folklore stories about him in the past that you think that can't be, you telling me after he was governor of New York, he took off for the West and then like lived with a couple guys in a cabin and hunted in the middle of like North Dakota. And yeah, he, he did. Huh. <laughs> and it was real. It wasn't like, Oh, you know, kind of did it, but it was all for publicity. Stunt. Nope. Nope. He just did that. You know, kind that kind of thing. Even his whole, uh, you know, uh, the, the war in Cuba, you know, um, with the rough riders, that whole mm-hmm. thing, reading about it and finding out that it's not, you know, it seemed the legend was too good to be true. Did he actually do all that stuff? And it's like, well, yeah, apparently he did really do all this stuff that it would just be unheard of by anybody today. Hmm. So anyway, that does sound like, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. So on my side, I want to let people know about an article that just released a couple of days ago called what's up with WhatsApp terms of service. Um, there's a link to it in the show notes. Basically, I think it's been a couple of weeks now, but WhatsApp had a big old kerfuffle about their privacy policy changing and people feeling that they were being almost threatened. Um, if they didn't accept the privacy policy, somehow change, it was going to somehow um, expose more data to Facebook. And I think a lot of people, this is how they found out that Facebook owns WhatsApp. Anyway, uh, there's more to it than that. It's not as, as as scary a deal as a lot of people seem to make it out to be. Uh, so if you want some amount of uh, clarity or, or confirmation that you know WhatsApp either is or isn't as good or as bad as you think it is, WhatsApp, what's up with WhatsApp's terms of service is the Ask Lee article. Uh, about a month ago, we had um, Kay was on the show. Yes. as he uh, appears sometimes. And he talked about the Raspberry Pi 400 right. uh, the all-in-one li- looks like a keyboard computer that you plug in the sitting TV. next to me. Yeah. So I got one too. And I did exactly what I think I might've mentioned in that show or maybe afterwards uh, that I plan to do was to see how it works for the Apple ecosystem. I basically just, you know, can I access iCloud.com with it and mm-hmm. look at all the files? Can I, um, do other things, you know, if you have a house full of Apple computers and iPhones and iPads, how can you use this to fit in with that? You know, mm-hmm. can you do screen sharing, for instance? So I, I got one and I tried all those things and I did a, a video on what I found. Uh, the answer is yes, but, mm, eh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's a yes, but it's a qualified, qualified yes. Qualified yes, yeah. Qualified yes. But uh, so anyway, I've got a video on the Raspberry Pi and how it will work with your Mac. All right. Well, that sounds good. I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week, don't you think? Yeah. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh126. If you've got a comment or a question, be sure and hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on the show notes page. Thanks, as always, for listening and for listening to me blather on about my origin story, my history. We all love to talk about ourselves. Next week will be Gary's turn. Thanks again, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.